Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Good morning. Today is the day. Today is Tuesday. It's the 12th of November, 2019. I'm Carmen. Welcome to Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Um, So I feel like Tuesday needs a catchphrase. Monday has its motivation. Wednesday is apparently wonderful. Thursday has its thoughts. Friday is declared to be fun or funny. Um, What about Tuesday? Carmen, taco. What? Yeah, I know. Okay, so you've you've now that is that was Matthew's answer to the question. I was like, "What do we make of Tuesday?" And when I floated this question at home, the response was instantly "Taco Taco Tuesday." Okay, so that led me to branch out slightly beyond tacos to Tasty Tuesday. So I am declaring Tuesday to be tasty. So how might we as Christians help others to taste and see that the Lord is good today? Now you're rolling your eyes, and that's totally fine. But I guarantee you I have set a hook in your mind as well. So how today might we as Christians help people experience Tuesday as a day that we taste and see that the Lord is good? So Tasty Tuesday. I am declaring Tuesday to be tasty. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's a direct quote from Psalm 34, verse 8. So how might we apply Psalm 34, 8 in our lives today, in real life, in real time, in real situations, how might we taste and see that the Lord is good and help others taste and see that the Lord is good, that Tuesday might become Tasty Tuesday? All right, here are three quick ideas. Tasty Tuesday tips. (laughs) Tasty Tuesday tips to help those around us and, frankly, ourselves remember, remember that the Lord is good. All right, so here's an idea. Here's a Tasty Tuesday tip. If you eat out anywhere today, well, I want you to, now I I suppose I should say, let's pray with a thankful heart for anything that we eat. But if you eat out, what I'm, what I'm talking about here is making, um, creating ways in which we can demonstrate our gratitude to God, even in ways that are publicly demonstrable. So if you eat out today in any environment, pray with a thankful heart for whatever it is that you eat or drink. Acknowledge the talent of the person who prepared and served the food. Um, You know, in those environments where it's appropriate, ask the person serving you. Like, this is what, this is what, I mean, again, I don't do it every time. But in places where it seems appropriate and, and there's time to do it, an opportunity, you know, I will ask the person who has brought the food, you know, I'll say, hey, we're going to ask a blessing over this meal. Is there a particular way we can pray for you? Invariably, they say yes, and they share their prayer concerns. Sometimes it is um, shocking and astonishing, and I have on many occasions been told no one has ever offered to pray for me before, so there's a lesson for us. So ask them if there's a particular way you can pray for them as you thank God uh, for the blessing of their service and the food that they have brought to you. there's There's a way to help people taste and see that the Lord is good. How about if you share a meal today with anyone else, literally anyone else, pray with them. 
pray with them that Christ would be made known between you and through you to others in the breaking of the bread. I'm thinking here, of course, of the walk to Emmaus from Luke chapter 24. Um, So Christ was made known to them in the breaking of the bread, right? They talked about how didn't our hearts burn within us as he broke the bread and shared with us everything about himself. And yes, yes, that's exactly, that's not heartburn. That's actually um, the way we feel when we come to this realization that God is real and God is good. And we thank him for our food and by his hands, we all are fed. Give us Lord this day, our daily bread. Good reminder there of childhood prayers. All right, one more tasty tip before uh, Paul makes us go to a quick break. And then Nick Pitts will be here from the Institute for Global Engagement. And we're going to run through some of the headlines of the day. Uh, One more quick taste and see. Um, Just think today about the feast that is set before us. All the places and spaces where Jesus shared a meal. Obviously, he ate every single one of his meals with sinners. But there is a table being prepared even now. And if you um, if you wanted to read about it, you could read about it in Revelation chapter nine, verses six to nine, where John is given this vision, this vision of this feast, the feast of the lamb. Uh, And it is set before us. And let us in great anticipation be looking forward to sharing that day with one another and with our Lord. Indeed, let this be tasty Tuesday. Let us and others see that the Lord is good. We'll be right back. walk-up song. Thank you so much for um, brightening our day and the days of others. Nick works with the Institute for Global Engagement. You can find him on Twitter at jnickpitts, and you can find him at thebriefing.net. Welcome back, my friend. Carmen, happy Tasty Tuesday to you. Happy Tasty Tuesday. Let us taste and see that the Lord is good. So good. So good. So um, it's cold out. Oh, my goodness. I was just telling Paul, I'm not used to this. This is not fair. I'm in Texas. Yesterday, it was 60 plus degrees when I got off my flight that morning. And by the end of the day, it was in its 30s this morning. I have greater appreciation for your listeners in Minnesota right now. My goodness gracious. Where in Twin Cities, it's five degrees. (laughs) Just saying. Just saying. And they're kind of embarrassed by those of us who, who think that, like, Oh, there's no, no, a dusting no. I, of snow. I, we must shut down and, the roads. The children cannot you know go what? to school. <laughs> I'm embarrassed by myself as well. I'm, but you know what? It's okay. I have a greater appreciation for your listeners. They, they're stronger than I am, and I'm more than okay with that. Right. Absolutely. Okay. So you and I live in similar locations, and so um, schools are on a two-hour delay here um, mm-hmm. because you know there's a dusting of snow and it's cold out and we can't make children go outside and all of that. So anyway, so the hardy people of the upper Midwest are are really, really uh, a bit ashamed of, of us as their southern neighbors today. But that's okay. That's okay. No, we're, no, we're not ashamed. You, you just southerners make us laugh. That's all. Uh, you know, you just have to bear with one another, the weaker brothers. Uh, Amen. And sisters. Amen. And so just bear with us as we try to figure out what does it look like to not uh, be sweating because we've been sweating for so long. <laughs> all right. Let's talk about this winter storm because it caused um, an O'Hare runway accident. 
Um, and some other things going on. 60 million people are affected. Yes? Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I'm actually going to be flying back to Tennessee tomorrow and a little worried just about flight schedules. I, I have the great news and a, an ending joy that there will be two more pizzas in the world <gasps> tomorrow with my brother and sister-in-law welcoming a child, uh, two twins, into the world tomorrow. So I, uh, but I'm like many others. This is the time of year where there is a multitude of individuals that are traveling. And so you've got the travel backups that will be happening right now, as well as the lingering, uh, lingering worry underneath um, many people's countenance this morning of seasonal effectiveness disorder will begin to emerge. Okay. So this is like the, the acronym is SAD, seasonal effectiveness disorder. Um, Talk a little bit about that because a lot of people suffer with this. Yeah, so this is uh, this is a type of depression that kind of hits w- with the changing of seasons. Anywhere from four to six percent of Americans suffer from this. Uh, Ten to twenty percent of Americans suffer from a mild form of it. What's fascinating about SAD is uh, it really does like this wintry mix. And I know it's, and I don't want to make light of this, but this wintry mix is com- in comparison from an emotional standpoint to a terrorist attack for some individuals. Mm. It's just really. Mm. It's very difficult. And then you think about you think about the reason why there's an increasing number. There's certain studies that suggest there's an increasing number because there's a large number of individuals that don't have somebody beside them during this wintry cold time to be able to help process what they're going through right now, as well as to think through how they might be able to buoy their spirits. Because underneath all this is a loneliness epidemic that continues to rack the American experiment. Okay, um... So in terms of the things that uh, that we need to be doing, I think that part of this is just be this is my sort of like bolo uh, thinking here. Be on the lookout for people who we ordinarily see and engage with who kind of disappear this time of year and be sure that we are intentional about seeking them out. Isn't that a part of this? Like not allowing people to kind of withdraw into the shadows of of this season. And Carmen, you're right on with that. I think one of the key parts that we just need to be mindful of is that individuals largely are isolating themselves from larger society now. So there used to be a day that I'm sure many of your listeners joined bowling leagues. They were part of rotary clubs. There were other opportunities outside of work that they were meeting other people and being known by other people. Well, today they're largely isolated and and, uh, and only going out for work, even though a decreasing number of individuals are going out for work because there's been such an uptick in the work at home movement that's happening right now. And so for your listeners that are that are listening on the way into work this morning or maybe they're already into work, it's really important just to be able to keep an eye out, like you said, for those individuals that just the, the recluses that just have a, a more of a quiet tendency that might not have anyone because this is going to be a very hard time this beginning of the as we approach winter. All right, we got to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about the firing of Canadian uh, hockey analyst Don Cherry, which yeah. I will just admit to you is not a person with whom I was familiar until the story broke. I want to talk about that. And then I want to reach back uh, a day or two and talk about um, the story that you had at thebriefing.net about the Pew Research uh, and this, this increasing and really kind of overwhelming number of Americans who live in romantic partnerships, like they're cohabitating, but they're not married. So we're going to talk about those two subjects up next with Nick Pitts. We'll be right back. (laughs) 
wintry fairyland. Nick Pitts is here from the Institute for Global Engagement on this quite chilly day across the United States of America. So no matter where you're listening, unless, of course, you're some of our listeners listening uh, on the Faith Radio app um, in Australia, where it's not only unseasonably hot, but where you are having horrific wildfires. So certainly praying the news on that front. But those of us here in uh, North America are frankly pretty cold today. Um, Nick, let's talk about the firing of the He's not just the coach. He's like the coach's corner coach. Yeah. Um, ta- okay, so uh, let me just go ahead and confess. I, I did not know that references to poppies was racist, or maybe that's not the part of this that's considered racist. So explain to us what has happened, and then yeah. um, help us understand like why this is considered racist. So Don Cherry, he is a uh, he's a commentator uh, for Canadian night hockey. He has uh, largely been a pretty divisive figure for his time uh, since he's been off the ice. He was formerly a coach on the ice, and now he transitioned over the fast past few years to be uh, just a, a hot take commentator is what I would say. He's just very divisive, can be very good in certain instances. But in this instance, this past Saturday night, uh, relative to the poppy flowers, to where the poppy flowers is a sign in Canada to honor the veterans and those that have come before to make the country what it is. And there was a, he his comments isolated immigrants and used the us versus them language that's so mm. divisive in today's culture. Used that us versus them language, and that was really the straw that broke the camel's back. There were certain commenters that were out there saying that it wasn't necessarily this isolated incident, um, even though this isolated incident, he's even gone ahead and doubled down and says he doesn't take it back. This is a series of problems that uh, uh, can- Hockey Night in Canada has faced with Don Cherry. And so they've gone ahead and um, let him go and relieved him of his services. But it, it just really is what what's happening worldwide if you go outside of sports. Worldwide, specifically in soccer, there is a uh, there is a, a tinge of racism that continues to just percolate on the surface in soccer as well as in, in certain segments for hockey, for example. And so the, this was O Canada's night of trying to do everything that they can to mitigate this because mm. hockey is just such a booming industry around the world right now. So um, I had a couple of thoughts after I read what you wrote. Um, again, we're talking with Nick Pitts. You can check out what he writes at thebriefing.net. Um, and after I read what, what you posted there about this, um, I was thinking to myself, this is one of those times and places where out of um, the heart is the mouth. Is it out of the mouth the yep. heart speaks or out of the mouth, yeah. out of the heart the mouth speaks? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Either way, what comes out of your mouth is evidence of what's going on in your heart. And and I felt like that's it was less about maybe specifically what was said in this instance about poppies, because that was actually not the point of the whole conversation. Um, But that out of this individual's heart, the things that were in evidence were out of alignment with his employer. And I think that that is the part of this that as Christians, you know, we we need to be lifting up. And it's not that we're judging what's in another person's heart. We're actually taking the outward evidence of what has come out of that person's mouth. And we're saying, hmm, what does this say about um, how they perceive the other? And when we talk about the other, we have to remember that, you know, change the circumstance and we're talking about us. 
Yeah. And so yeah. um, it's only, you know, it's only because we live where we live that we are the that we are we and they are they kind of thing. Right. The us and them language changes pretty quickly um, in terms of the environment that you find yourself in. Completely agree, Carmen. I think one of the two contextual issues to take into account when considering this, uh, Mr. Cherry's comments. One, you just have uh, you have Justin Trudeau, who is the prime minister, has just come out of the blackface scandal, whiteface, brownface, whatever you wanted to call it. That scandal that he was a part of was just it has just racked their country. And so this is making them hypersensitive and hyper aware of the race issue. And the second piece being the immigration issue, just like it's uh, with us. Uh, Canada is facing their immigration um, opportunities and issues right now simply because of the mass influx of individuals from across the globe that are being displaced because of rulers and tyrants. And so this is just another way in which everyone's more highly sensitive to the race issue than they than they ever been have than they have been rather in recent history. And so Mr. Cherry was the latest. Um, I, I hate to say he's the latest individual to fall because of just some of those sensitivities right now because of it. Okay, so I really I want to um, touch on this Pew research related to um, cohabitation in the United States. I know we don't have much time to do this, but can you can you tell us what's going on there? Because we have not talked about this uh, yet here on the program. There are more people that will live together than will be married that are married. So, for example, there used to be a day that it was uh, there was love, then marriage, then the baby carriage. But now what we're finding is that there is love move in together, and then potentially marriage. So 70% of Americans would say that it's all right to cohabitate. 54% of um, first marriages are cohabitation before marriages. There's a huge, there's a radical reshifting. And I would say because the divorce culture that we're coming out of, individuals don't want to perpetuate the hurt that they might've experienced as children growing up in divorced families. And so they're trying it out. And so they're cohabitating with their significant others. And the research is super clear. You've got you've got uh, more than a majority after six months that are moving in together. It's seen as the natural progression of a relationship now, whereas there used to be a day that this stage of a relationship was saved until you made a committed uh, marital covenant with one another. That is far from the case today. So I think the most staggering part of this Pew research, and again, Nick Pitts and I are talking about some Pew Research Center. Um, findings related to uh, the percentage of Americans who are living together or have lived together outside of marriage. Um, and and obviously we're talking about people in romantic partnerships. Um, I was really kind of stunned when we talk about the percentage of people in America who think it's okay. There's a higher, yeah. I mean, obviously there's a higher percentage of people who think it's okay than those who have actually done it or are doing it. But um, that speaks to the conversations that we need to be having as Christians in terms of the value that we place on marriage oh, yeah. and how we are allowing the culture to redefine marriage in ways that are completely inconsistent with completely what Scripture says. And you know, the sneaky little part of this is the graying divorce that's happening. So there's more individuals mm. that the kids have gotten, kids have left the house, they're getting, uh, and so now they're, they're instead of making the next, uh, next relationship and next commitment with a second marriage or what have you, they're just cohabitating one with another. And so that's where you're starting to see this sizable uptick. It's not simply just in a millennial Gen Z saying, well, sure, I don't see anything wrong with that. You've also got to look at the other end of the spectrum as well that's giving rise to the significant approving of cohabitation. And when we talk about um, applying Scripture to life, this is going to be yeah. a, a real sticking point for a lot of folks. Okay, Nick, hey, one more question before we let you go. 
Um, is there a transition on the horizon at the briefing? Yeah, oh my goodness, ah. like Amos, I am leaving the farm for a time. I feel as though there, it's, it's, it's become increasingly clear after about six-month conversation that the Lord is beckoning me over to the private sector. And so I have been okay. working with our team, uh, and we've got a stellar team uh, over at the briefing that are going to be taking up the reins on Monday. And I am so excited that you all get to see and read them because they are absolutely phenomenal. They excite me so much. Okay, but we uh, really like you. Take. So will you still uh, come talk to us going, sometimes? You, of course. <laughs> you are going to love them. My goodness. I, I'm smiling ear to ear knowing the team that is about to take over for the daily briefing. All right. Well, we look forward to you introducing us to them. And um, thank you so much for all that you have done. Um, and we look forward to talking with you in the future as well, because it's not as if God's going to stop tilling the soil in your heart. No way. No way. All right. Well, we are praying for you. We're praying for um, the growth of the Pitts family tomorrow. Um, that yeah. is really, really exciting. And, uh, you know, you're going to be in Middle Tennessee. So if you need anything, give me a call. Deal. Okay. All right. Hey, thanks, okay. man. That's Nick Pitts. Deal. You can continue to follow him on Twitter at Pitts. We'll be right back. Okay, so we all have more and more neighbors, people in our communities, people we intersect uh, paths with who do not look like us. And by their attire, uh, sometimes we can tell that they are religiously distinct from us, that they come from uh, cultural heritages and religious heritages, let's say specifically here, that are Muslim. Um, what do you do? What do you do? How, how are you um, engaging with your Muslim neighbors? Like, it's a real question, and it is also a real opportunity. Uh, and so knowing not only who they are and what they believe, but how to share our faith with them is essential. So I ran into Andy Bannister recently um, when he was in Nashville for a Crescent Project event. Now, Andy Bannister heads up the Solace Center for Public Christianity in Scotland. But prior to that, he was the Canada, Canada director for RZIM. You know that as the Ravi Zach Zacharias International Ministries. And Andy holds a Ph.D. in Islamic studies. Like, he actually has a Ph.D. in the Quran. Um, and so he's written uh, some really great academic books about that. But he's also written some popular books. He's really funny. Um, like, he, he, he basically talks about how do we talk about Jesus without embarrassing him? Like, right? How do, we, um, how, how do we talk about the things of the faith without tripping over ourselves and other people in such a way that we just make a mess of it. So I had the opportunity to record a conversation with Andy uh, about reaching our neighbors, particularly our Muslim neighbors for Jesus. You can find him at andybannister.net. And I'm really going to recommend the videos that Solus um, has posted called Short Answers. And Solus is S-O-L-A-S-C-P-C.org. So my conversation with Andy Bannister up next. Okay, so sometimes you miss uh, a portion of the show or you hear a portion of the show and you say to yourself, I really want to share that with somebody else. Well, the shows are actually archived as podcasts at MyFaithRadio.com. And you can go to the MyFaithRadio website. You can click on the Mornings with Carmen page or you can just click on the uh, header that says podcast. And you can either uh, re-listen to a, listen again I don't know if re-listen is a word. Listen again to a show that you heard that you maybe want to go back and take some notes on. Or 
maybe you were thinking to yourself, you know, that last conversation that Carmen had would be really helpful to my friend, my neighbor, my son, my daughter, my niece, my nephew, my coworker. Um, that's a great way of you extending this ministry to more and more people. Uh, and so sometimes we don't feel like we can say something ourselves, but we do feel like we can share something we've heard and then use that as a, a starting point for conversation with another person. So uh, use use me, use this, use the programs that uh, we produce here at My Faith Radio and share them with others. Actually, pretty much everything you've ever heard uh, on the network is available uh, to listen to again at MyFaithRadio.com in the podcast section. So we'd love for you to share this ministry, extend the reach of this ministry to more and more people through the podcasts uh, that we offer. We'll be right back with Andy Bannister. Thomas Jefferson said something more than 250 years ago that still rings true today. Never spend money before you have it. Hi, this is Callie Breeze from Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. You know, some things never change. People have always wanted things they can't afford or don't need. And going into debt is one way to do it. But is it worth it? So here's what I do when I'm faced with that dilemma. I ask myself a few simple questions. Do I need it? Can I delay my purchase till I have enough money to buy it? If I do buy it with a credit card, what's the total cost, including interest? And is it a short-term decision I'm going to regret in the long run? The most important question I ask, am I honoring God with this financial decision? When your faith informs your financial decisions, you can live a more content, confident, and generous life. I'm Callie Breeze with Thrivent. Welcome back. I'm thrilled to be joined by Andy Bannister. You may know him from the Solace Center for Public Christianity in uh, in the UK. You can find him on Twitter at Andy G. Bannister. You can also find him at andybannister.net. Um, Andy, you and I had an opportunity to meet at the Crescent Project National Conference when it was held in Nashville, Tennessee. So I'm actually going to ask you to just reflect a little bit on how Christians can engage um, our neighbors in conversations without maybe embarrassing Jesus. Thanks, Carmen. Yeah, I think, um, you know, what I love about being at the conference here is I, I think I started my session this morning by saying, you know, there are, what, three and a half million Muslims here in the U.S. Um, that's going to grow to six million by 2030. And of course, I think Christians often are afraid of our Muslim neighbors and see those numbers and worry. Uh, but, you know, by far the best solution to radical Islam is radical Christianity. So I think what we need to do is overcome our fear factor and start reaching out to our Muslim friend, neighbors, and colleagues. But then when you trace that thought down, I was talking to someone here at lunchtime who said that, you know, he said so often, he said, I realize as Christians that we meet someone new, we size them up. If they're a Christian, we think, great, we can be friends. If they're not a Christian, we sort of back off and, and retreat. Because I think we're afraid. We're afraid of engaging people who are different from us. We're afraid of what happens if people ask us questions we can't answer. We're afraid of getting clobbered around the head with a difficult objection to the gospel. Or we're afraid of just we haven't really got the ability anymore to, to share Jesus in a meaningful way with people who think differently. 
And so there's a huge need for Christians to get, get ahead of that. And it's you know, exciting to be involved in events like the Crescent Project and other kind of places. And as I shared this morning, I think there are really practical, easy to use tools and techniques that uh, almost anybody, whether you've been a Christian for, for six days or six months or six years, can begin to use for sharing their faith naturally. So I know that I've been to solas-cpc.org backslash short answers. So I know there are some great videos that you guys have done um, to equip the church on this. Could you share, uh, part of what you did this morning was just talk about um, the uses of really good questions and talk about that and then talk about Jesus as the really, you know, the best question asker. Absolutely. Well, to begin, Carmen, where you where you ended, I said I think I think the reason that questions are so effective in evangelism is a couple of things. Firstly, they create a conversation, and I think the thing we need to learn to do as Christians have good conversations with people. Just you know, natural conversations in which we weave Jesus in, and questions help you do that. But then, as you read the Gospels, you discover that questions were Jesus's favorite method of engaging with people. He asked something like three hundred que- different questions in the Gospels. Somehow, we've got it into our head that you know an evangelistic conversation looks like me sort of you know forcing you into a corner, getting you to shut up, and then I download the Gospel onto you. That never works. It's never worked, and it's not biblical. Um, so, good questions are really helpful because I think they they take the pressure off ours. They start a conversation going. So, yeah, this morning I simply taught, and they're not original to me. You can find various people have used similar frameworks. I taught people three questions. Questions. Um, what do you mean by that? Uh, how did you come to that conclusion? And then have you ever wondered? And that last one is the interesting one, because I think we live in an age where increasing numbers of people have no, or will tell you they have no interest in, in faith. So if you ask them what they think about God, they're going to go, oh, it's not even relevant to me. But they are passionate about things like justice, meaning, truth, beauty, human rights, significance, purpose, uh, all those kind of things. And as a Christian, I think being able to ask questions like, well, have you ever wondered why those things matter to us? If we are just atoms and particles and molecules, if we're nothing more than cleverly evolved primates whose job is to survive and reproduce, you know, why do we care about beauty and truth and justice? Have you ever wondered? And that's a great way to begin with those issues and then show how they make the best sense if the gospel is true. And of course, the gospel itself is a, is a question, right? Who do you say I am? Uh, Jesus asked people. And your answer to that is, is really, you know, determines, uh, you know, what you'll do with Jesus. Part of what I really uh, appreciated, and again, I'm talking with Andy Bannister. You can find him at andybannister.net, which he's embarrassed by, but it's the truth. Um, part of what I appreciated, and one of the things that I was writing down when you were talking this morning, was what are my sort of go-to phrases? I think of it maybe more as a go-to phrase than a go-to question. And I felt like this morning you really provoked me to ask, like, okay, Carmen, what are your go-to questions? What are the questions that you are ready to ask that buy you a little time? Maybe they bring the temperature of the conversation down a little bit. They provoke the other person to think. Um, those were some of the things that you shared, and I thought those were really helpful. I, my go-to um, uh, phrase is tell me more. Three words, tell me more, just to get the, keep the other person talking about what they're talking about. Um, in order, I really, um, can you talk a little bit about one of the things that you shared was, let's just say a person, um, you know, they're asking a big, huge question about evil or about suffering. I thought you made a really good point about figuring out where that's coming from in order that you know how to approach the answer. Yeah, so I think the, the danger, Carmen, is that we, um, you know, we, ask, uh, we get asked a question by a friend or a colleague or a neighbor, and then one of two things happens. You either don't know the answer to it, and you, and you kind of panic, and you go into a tailspin, or almost worse, you do know the answer, because the, the pastor preached a really good sermon on it, you've read a book by, you know, Ravi Zacharias or somebody, you're like, oh, great, I know this one, and you immediately go into, into Christian answer, man or woman mode, but you miss the fact that you haven't actually addressed the, the real issue. 
And the best way to get the realist to you is find out why the person asked the question. So I give the example of the suffering question. It's by far one of the, one of the most common questions that we get as Christians. You know, if God is good and all-powerful, why is there suffering in the world? And if somebody asks you a version of that question, I said this morning, look, there may be two, well, more than two, but there might be two, at least two reasons why they're asking it. Maybe they've seen a, you know, maybe they're an angry atheist. They've seen a, a YouTube video uh, by one of those kind of celebrity atheists, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, one of that lot, who's told people that's a really good question to throw at a Christian, to, to throw them up. And that's why they're asking. That's a possibility. Or they're asking you that question because their sister has just died in a road traffic accident. It's probably quite important you know which it is. And the great thing is it's easy to find out when someone asks you the question or raises the issue, just take it very seriously. Say, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful question. Thank you for asking it. And it's a hugely important question. Um, you know, engage with it and then say, but just out of interest, why is it important to you? Why did you have all the things you could have asked about? Why did you ask that particular question? And there's a very good chance they may, they may tell you. Maybe they'll say, well, because last week my sister was killed by a drunk driver. Where was God in, you know, insert expletive that? Right. Okay. Isn't an easy conversation, but at least you know now what you're dealing with and you can shift more into pastoral mode than somebody who's just trying to be clever. So, yeah, I think a great question to ask anybody when they ask you any questions, why do you ask that? Why does that matter to you? All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to continue my conversation with Andy Bannister. We're actually recording this at the Crescent Project National Conference in Nashville, and we'll be right back. Continuing my conversation now with Andy Bannister. Um, if you've ever wanted to just be equipped for what I like to call conversational evangelism, um, not not sort of like how do we memorize all the propositional answers to the questions, but how do we engage in real conversation with real people about the real issues that they're facing in life? Andy is actually very adept at that, and you'll also appreciate that he has a lovely accent. So when he asked the question, have you ever wondered, it sounded to some of you like he asked, have you ever wandered? Which is also a really good question, but not the one we're focused on today. All right, so he and I uh, are having this conversation at the Crescent Project National Conference in Nashville, Tennessee. Part of what we are learning here is how do we engage our Muslim neighbors? Like that's the context of this conversation. But Andy has really expanded this into a conversation about how do we really talk to anybody without you know, about Jesus without sounding like an idiot. I think that that is really what Andy has tried to distill down for us today. So I'm going to ask him a very direct question about, um, about the gospel, because one of the things you said this morning is the gospel is itself an answer to a question. I'd love for you to just walk us through uh, that Mark chapter 8 conversation. Yeah, well, what I was saying, Carmen, it's very interesting. When you look in, in Mark chapter 8 and the conversations reported in some of the other Gospels, so Jesus and the disciples walking along the road, right? And Jesus turns to his disciples, and I, I think I said uh, probably with a twinkle in his eye, and says, you know, who do, you, uh, who do the crowds say that I am? And if you remember the passage, the disciples bring up all these various answers, you know, Lord, you know, some people think you're John the Baptist, some think you're Elijah, some think you're one of the prophets, and, you know, probably other answers kind of sloshing around. And I, and I like to imagine Jesus having a bit of fun with the disciples here and going, oh, really? They thought that? And, you know, those crowds, eh? and the disciples probably really laying into it, oh, Lord, you know, it's only we lot who are the smart ones. These crowds haven't got it figured out, right? And I love Jesus sort of, you know, playing along with that until suddenly, if you remember the conversation, he looks at them and says, so who do you say that I am? And I think that's the moment I can imagine all the disciples falling quite quiet at that point, embarrassed silence, you know, because it's one thing to make fun of others, but now you're being asked. And if you remember the conversation, of course, only Jesus, only Peter has the courage to say, well, you're the, you're the son of God, you're the Messiah. 
and uh, the whole of Mark's gospel hinges on that because that's the point at which Jesus then sets his face to go go to Jerusalem. And what's fascinating about that is two things. One, we live in an age where everyone has an opinion on, on who Jesus is. Arguably, nothing's changed. Back then, the crowds didn't know who he was. Today, people don't know who he is. You know, some of my atheist friends don't think he existed. My Muslim friends think he's, a pro- think he's a prophet. My Hindu friends think he's an avatar. You know, various people think he's all kinds of things. Who do you say that I am is still the question. But it's also the question that Jesus asks each one of us. Who do you say that I am? And if you say that, you know, you, Jesus, you are Lord, you are Christ, you are the one risen from the dead, well, Romans 10 verse 9 says that's the definition of whether you're a Christian. So the gospel is the answer to a question, who do you say that I am? I love that. Uh, I've had a conversation recently with a young person in my life, and uh, it was a follow-on to a sermon at church. And our pastor was talking about, you know, the reality that we do stand as individuals before God. But if you then confess, right, if you then acknowledge that Jesus is who he says he is and who we understand him to be, you're never alone again. And there is that, there is that part of this gospel question that is individually, you know, it's individually addressed, right? Who do you say that I am? But then once you've given the answer to, the, to that question, you know, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God, you become a part of a people um, who, you know, Peter describes as a royal priesthood and a holy nation. One of the things that you said in response to a question from uh, the audience today was about the manner in which we address these conversations. Could you talk about that? That's right. I think somebody asked a, a, a question about, um, you know, getting to the heart of this. It's one thing to use the right words, but then our manner is important. And I picked up on that by, by, by reading from 1 Peter 3, verse 15 and, and 16. 1 Peter 3, 15 famously says, always be willing to give a reason for the hope that you have. Um, and that's uh, where we get the, the Greek word apologia is translated give a reason. We get the word apologetics from there. But we sometimes miss it goes on to say, but do this with gentleness and respect. And there is something about the manner of the way that we ask, we, we engage with, with people. And, uh, and the way we carry ourselves can make a big difference. You know, I remember um, an interesting story that illustrated this a few years ago. Um, there was a very big debate between uh, John Lennox, very well-known Christian, and Richard Dawkins, very well an atheist, in the I think it was in the in the UK, and there was a reporter from one of the major newspapers came and covered that, and uh, what was interesting, he he the piece he wrote up on it talked about the fact that he'd gone into that story, um, rooting for Professor Dawkins because he was more of an atheist, and so you know John, Richard was his team as it were, but he described how spending the day with the two uh, debaters sort of he went into the debate and in the end rooting for, for john because john had been lovely and gracious when they met he'd made him tea and served him cake and john just does this so well he's very irish and hospitable but richard let's be fair maybe he was having a bad day and had not been so charitable had been quite um a difficult let us say uh, interviewee and it was really interesting that the the servant-hearted character of the christian versus the the opposite on the other side had led to that reporter going into the debate going, okay, I think I want John Lennox to win. And I think he ended by saying, he said, at the very least it was a draw. I think actually John might have, might have won it. And it was again a testimony to the way we do things. How do we treat people? Even when people are rude to us and difficult and belligerent, how do we respond with grace and compassion? Yes, with answers, we need answers as well. But how do we respond with grace and compassion? And I think I'll invite you to tell one more story before we let you go. Um, and that is about the power of inviting someone into your home. Yeah, so another story I shared at the conference uh, today was I told the story of a friend of mine back in the UK uh, who'd invited a Muslim colleague of his um, and his and his family around for, for, for dinner. And he'd been working with him for about 10 years, and then he'd finally kind of plucked up the courage to invite this gentleman to dinner. 
and had a lovely time and uh, the conversation actually got into gospel territory quite quickly but it was what happened at the end of the evening was interesting because at the end of the evening his Muslim colleague turned to him and said you know thank you so much for inviting my wife and I to dinner this has been a wonderful evening we really enjoyed it really enjoyed hearing about you more about you and your your faith and then it was what he said next was interesting he said you know I have lived in this country for 20 or 25 years um, here in the UK this is the first time I have ever been inside a Christian home and my colleague, uh, my friend said, you know, at that point, he didn't know how to respond at that point because on the one hand, feeling very, very guilty, taking him 10 years to invite him, um, but no Christian in that time. And it really, I think the lesson from that is what would it look like if as Christians we were far more proactive? Hospitality is a whole other episode to do here on the power of hospitality and evangelism, um, reaching out to friends, neighbors, colleagues, whether they're Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist or atheist, and just being proactive, opening our homes up. How might the Lord work that way? Look at Jesus and hospitality in the gospels. I just love it. Um, that reminds me of Rosaria Butterfield's uh, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. So I'll just give a little plug for that here. Andy Bannister, thank you so much for being with us today. We're going to send people to uh, his website, andybannister.net, and also to solas, S-O-L-A-S, dot dash, C-P-C dot O-R-G. That's where you can get those short answers videos that are so helpful. Thank you so much, Andy. We'll be right back. All right, so how are you going to make this Tasty Tuesday? How are you going to not only individually, personally taste and see that the Lord is good, Psalm 34, 8, but also live your faith in such a way that others can taste and see that the Lord is good? How are we going to walk our faith out there into the world that God so loves in ways that honor Jesus, making him known? You know, people need manna. People need um, today, they need to know that God is good and God provides, and there is sweet manna from heaven. There is the bread of life. What would it look like for us to break bread in such a way that Christ is made known to others um, in and through us? Some passages of scripture that you could look at would certainly be the Last Supper, maybe the meal that Jesus shares with Mary and Martha or Zacchaeus. Um, all kinds of meals come to mind. All right, let us taste and see that the Lord is good. We've got a whole nother hour to do it. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.